one of the most dynamic missionary stories in the New Testament. Amazing things happening. Let's pray. Father, we are looking at your word now, so we ask you to give us insight into your work in the world, what the Holy Spirit actually does in the lives of people. And we rejoice in the salvation that you granted to these people and to us as well, because that is our sure hope. And we rest in it in Christ's name. Amen. So, Acts 19 really offers some excellent insight into what missionaries face all the time in all different kinds of places and, and uh, times in terms of opposition really but more importantly than that is how world changing the gospel actually is uh, when a particular population widely embraces it. Never, nobody, there's never a time when everybody embraces it but when many people do things change. A culture actually begins to change. So we're going to look at this chapter over the next two weeks. I'm going to get as far as I can today, but this story takes place in the city of Ephesus, one of the great Greek cities of antiquity. Laura and I got a chance to go there. In fact, we got a chance to go there on the luckiest day in the world because, because of the terrorists. Um, this is actually a true story. You know, at Ephesus, the, the cruise ships pull in there all the time, so it's just packed with people. And there was some kind of bombing in Istanbul. We were in Turkey, so um, the, the day before we were to go to Ephesus, so none of the ships were coming in. So we literally had the whole place to ourselves, except for one busload of Koreans. But I mean, to, to have that few people there to run anywhere we wanted around ancient Ephesus, it's an incredible place to visit. That's why all the cruise ships turn in there. But anyway... Um, we were really fortunate to go. I'll post some pictures on the Facebook page, our church Facebook page or something. But um, this story takes place in Ephesus and it, uh, Pliny called Ephesus the light of Asia. So Asia is a Roman province. It's not talking about all of the continent there. It's just this Roman province in what today is Turkey. So if you can see it on the map there, um, the Athenians founded uh, Ephesus as a colony really early on and their purpose was to create a major center for trade and their expansion across the sea there into Asia. That's their, uh, uh, Athe Athens was an empire building um, country and they wanted access into the interior of Asia. So they planted this city on, the, uh, this, uh, on a river and also a place which had a good place to build a, a harbor, a port. So, and it gave them access to the Lycus Valley, which is a really valuable place. A lot of raw materials there, especially lumber and good grazing land. And the city was located with this harbor and at the mouth of the Caister River, like I said, to get easy transport into the interior there. And the Athenians made it a great success and it served them really well for centuries, really. But it was almost too successful. It's a pretty common story in the ancient world that when you build a city like that on a, on a river mouth, basically, and you go in interior and you kind of work the interior and tear down all the forests and everything like that, and then you send in um, especially Greek goats, which are not good because they destroy a lot of plants. Um, they graze and leave a desolation there. But... Um, Silt started working its way down the river, and this has happened multiple times throughout history, and started clogging up that harbor. It took centuries, but by the Roman period, it was pretty useless. I mean, it was, because it was such a great trade city for all these years, but they kept digging out the silt and trying it and trying to keep up with it, but they, they just couldn't 
eventually. So trade became less and less a center of the life of Ephesus and it actually became um, a religious center instead. Okay, so 133 BC, remember I told you how that Romans completely destroyed Corinth? I mean completely destroyed it. That was in 146 BC. So when they started to cross over from Greece into Asia, they gave people an option. You can surrender to us or you know what happened to Corinth, right? So anyway, the king that lived there um, in this area in Asia gave the Romans Ephesus. He just said, you know what, why don't you guys take it? I'm sure you can handle it very well. So uh, they survived and it wasn't destroyed. So um, it actually became the Roman capital of Asia and it, which meant a Roman proconsul, a very high-ranked person, would be put in charge there because that was the capital of that region. And the silting issue became very serious in Paul's day. So um, the economy was, like I said, not centered on trade anymore. The economy shifted to religious tourism. And one of the great wonders of the ancient world, the seven wonders of the ancient world, was the, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. Artemis of the Ephesians, as we'll see later in this, this book. It was a magnificent structure. Um, people even came just for the architecture, let alone the, just to see this incredible huge building, much bigger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was just gigantic. And like all tourist places, what collects around tourism? Well, more tourism, right? You have to come up with other things. Well, a, a, Jupiter, a Jupiter sent a rock down, so this meteorite was there as well, and people could see that, and they couldn't take pictures, but I guess you could sketch one. But... Um, <laughs> But all kinds of things, and then all kinds of other weird things would accrue around a touristy place like that. But because most of the pilgrims that came there were religious to offer sacrifices to Artemis or seek blessings from Artemis, all kinds of other weird stuff was going on too. Ephesus was like a center of magic and spells and witchcraft and formulas and you could buy all kinds of things there. A lot of money to be made in the tourism trade, just like any tourist place, right? You go any place, they're going to sell you little versions or little refrigerator magnets or whatever it is. It's something related to your trip there and people buy those things. So that became the economy of Ephesus. When, when the sea trade kind of died off, they became a place for tourism. It's pretty hard to exaggerate how important that temple was for the whole region. So little images of the temple were sold and just like you see today, whenever you go to a cool place, you get little versions of it. And uh, in fact, you know, we had to buy a Greek vase with little <laughs> Greek warriors on it when we were in Greece, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but so we did, I'm still sitting in my office. But um, anyway, when I think of Artemis, I think of this statue of a pretty young maid with a, with a quiver on her back and a bow in her hand and a deer next to her. And, and she's got a typical Greek tunic on, but it's sort of short because she would run through the forest. That's, that's the Greek version of Artemis or Diana. And uh, she, Homer called her the mistress of animals and she of the wild. That, that was her thing, you know. In our minds, we picture the Greek gods as images of human perfection. But Artemis in Ephesus, is she up there? Put, put up Artemis in Ephesus. She was a creepy, icky thing. <laughs> and that's actually a picture I took in the museum there at Ephesus of a, a statue, that's not the one that was in the great temple, but that's a smaller one, you know, about a human size one or so. And uh, that's what she looked like, really weird looking. Um, by the way, creepy icky is a technical <laughs> archaeological word for certain things you find over there. But that one was actually discovered in Ephesus, and, and that Artemis is, 
is even though it had the, the name of the Greek goddess, it was really a recasted version of an Anatolian fertility goddess, and that's, that's what she is, a regional goddess. But the pagans thought that she represented bounty and fertility and all of that kind of stuff. So imagine bringing the gospel there to Ephesus with all the stuff built around that temple there. I mean, religion was literally the center of everything that went on there in, in a very important way. So it's sort of like Mission Impossible, you know, to take the gospel. At your mission, Jim, if you decide to accept it. Declare the futility of idol worship and the absolute need to turn from idols to the living and true God who made everything and who became man and bore our sins on the cross and rose from the dead to achieve our salvation. Your mission is to get in there and do it. And Paul accepted it. And then the little tape burned up. <laughs> That's a Mission Impossible joke for you, those of you that are too young to remember that television show. Anyway, Paul says, great, you know, so he goes. So Paul takes up that mission in Ephesus, and as Luke tells it, Luke emphasizes more than he does in other places the spiritual dimension of this uh, bringing the gospel to a pagan place. And I mean, Paul's battle with idolatry and unbelief, that's always there, but, but by spiritual dimension, I mean actual demonic powers that, that were there. Um, just beyond, uh, you know, the Bible, Luke often talks about pride being part of the opposition or religion or jealousy or kind of men, human reasons for that kind of stuff. But uh, he talks more about spiritual things here. I, I don't, I don't think, except for the except for the demon possessed girl in Acts chapter 16, I don't think he's mentioned satanic things or demonic things since chapter 8. So we've gone a long way without hardly anything like that, except that little girl in Acts 16, the Pythoness slave girl that Paul set free. But um, you know, in the world, there's two sources of evil: there's human beings, and then there's Satan, right, and his minions, right, demonic power. So there's the demonic and the human. And in Western countries, we think mostly about the human. And there's good reason for that. Westerners are taught that we are only biology and there's no spiritual realm. So Satan is perfectly happy to let us believe that. And so he doesn't do too much on the spiritual side here that's really obvious because that would send people fleeing possibly to some solution. Um, so the, the big lie in the West is that dark powers aren't real. No powers are real beyond uh, biology. But the human side of spiritual darkness is our, our sin nature. So we all have that. And that is opposed to God. So there are dark powers in the world and then there's human nature. We walked away from God and we bear the responsibility for having walked away from God. That's on us. And we have to be made right with him. And that can only happen through Christ because we're wicked and God is good. I mean, really good. Really, really good. And he can't have wicked things in, in heaven. So it's on us. The prophet Jeremiah said, somebody brought this up the other day, the heart is more deceitful than all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. So if a human being, our very essence is to be self-deceived and the dark powers are expert at lying, that's a bad combination because Satan will feed us or give us or offer us or teach us anything to keep away from God and somewhere along the line we'll buy it. And he's got temptations for everyone. Whatever your bent is or your personality is, he's got something tailored for you to deceive you to keep you away from the living God. Jesus, like I said, called him the father of lies. So we're already prone to deception and he just feeds 
that deception. He offers any and every false thing to supplant God in our hearts. That's what Satan does. In their very affections of our hearts really. So places like Ephesus, they're like central station for deceit, for supplanting God with anything else. So like I said, it's not just that Artemis was there. Magic spells, I mean they found all this stuff. The, the mysteries, the, even, there's even a big synagogue there, a, a large synagogue there. And that has a different kind of, they weren't idolatrous, but they worshiped their tradition more than anything else. So they weren't open. Uh, many of them weren't open to that. Although Paul has great success in the synagogue here. So um, all of that stuff's going on. Today in America, people, what, what, how are we deceived? The typical American, we actually believe that God is whatever we think he is. And that you hear that when people say, my God is a God of whatever. Your God. We're really, we literally make ourselves the creators of God. That's how people, and, and, and it's fine if you create your own too. That's all up to you. Whatever we want God to be, whatever we want him to, or her to be, that's what God is. We literally make him up according to our preferences, which makes us the creator of reality. And if you're the creator of God, then it just so happens he perfectly comports with whatever you think. Isn't that strange how he just fits right in with whatever you think is right and wrong? The God you made up? Mm. Talk about self-deceived. Talk about the human heart. So, of course, you don't need to conform yourself to God because the God you invent in your mind, he perfectly comports with you. He's exactly what you want him to be. He's like you. And you get to pick the commandments you like and reject the commandments you don't like. It sounds nice, except you are very, very tiny and you don't live very long in the scheme of things and your God dies with your mind, right? Uh, he's not going to be there on the other side, the God you invented, because you just made him up. You have to deal with the God who is there. And so Paul is bringing them the God who is there, who's a great God, a God of great judgment and a God of great mercy and compassion on people through Christ. He provided a savior for the whole world, for any who would put their faith in him. So reality is going to catch up with us. And if the God of the Bible is reality, then only what he says is what matters. And he has the absolute authority to define what we should believe and what we should do, how we should behave. That's all his. So while many people like to keep God sort of vague, the living God does exist. He has spoken clearly. He's revealed himself personally in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So it's kind of like a pitch dark room when you throw the dark curtain over and the sun just peers in. That's what it's like when Christ comes into the world. He just shines a light on everything, what it really is. And so it's hard to be deceived when you look at him. Everything becomes clear. But the one who does deceiving, he works really hard. And places like Ephesus are strongholds of deception. And Satan likes his stronghold, so he's going to fight. But one of the most wonderful things about Paul's experience in Ephesus is just how successful the gospel really is. And that's what makes it so special. So um, he has a great opportunity afforded him in the synagogue. This is, this is different from all the other synagogue stories we ran into so far. Where if he gets three weeks, that's like really good. And usually it's two and sometimes one before they start kicking him out. 
right? Like, uh, and what's going to happen? But look at verse 8. So we're in verse 8 here. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. Three months? <laughs> Having discussions and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That's a dozen Sabbaths. That's a lot. That's way more. They're way more listening than they have in any other place there. That's a long time. It shows a lot of interest. Usually he gets like a week, maybe two. But of course, some are going to cling to the tradition and the old ways and reject what he's saying. But they did give him a full hearing, and that's a really a good thing. So by the end of three months, within the synagogue there, there's a sharp division between those who have accepted Jesus and those who haven't, who reject him. And uh, after that much time reasoning in the synagogue and being allowed to do that, Paul decides it's time to go ahead. It's not, nothing's going to change much after that. He's not going to persuade anybody else. Um, there's a lot of tension and he doesn't want that. So he decides to pull the Christians out and go somewhere else and let the synagogue be the synagogue. So um, he makes that decision uh, to avoid this constant antagonism here. So there might be bad feelings, but the Jews are not inclined to persecute uh, in Ephesus like they were in some of the other cities we've talked about. So verse 9. When some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, so now they're actually attacking Christ and Christianity uh, from the synagogue, uh, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took the disciples away with him and had daily discussions in the school of Tyrannus. So this guy named Tyrannus has a school there, uh, a hall probably in, in Ephesus. Now, I don't know if his parents named him that or if he's just a really mean teacher, but, you know, Tyrannus means tyrant. So, I don't, I don't, I don't know if his parents... What do we call him, dear? Tyrant. <laughs> if you wait till they're two, it's a good name. But um, I don't think anybody would name a baby tyrant right off. But anyway, he opens his school for the church to meet in and he likely had some kind of a hall or place like that. And they met there. Imagine a church meeting in a school. What a weird thing. <laughs> I know a church that did that for decades. <laughs> And then they took some school buildings and built out a little church. Isn't that funny? So um, it does happen in time. Anyway, it just, it, it just so happens that um, there's, there's a little family of New Testament manuscripts called the, the Western thing. And there's a little extra verse in there right here. And it's not in our Bibles. It's not even in the King James Bibles. No, it, it wasn't attested well enough. But it actually says that um, Paul was in there between... Um, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. doesn't use those words but I mean that's and that's when he was teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Just so happens that's siesta time in Asia Minor. So it's like if they did have a school they would have taken a break between that time. So we don't know if there was somebody got wind of what actually happened there and inserted that into a text in, in a certain place but it didn't wasn't in a broadly in the New Testament so it de didn't end up in the things. But anyway there is a tradition there. But, the, but anyway this church has a little home and uh, they meet during siesta time maybe. Uh, that kind of a thing. So things are going really well. Verse 10 is a statement of Paul's first two and a quarter years in Ephesus. He never stays anywhere that long. But it's going so well. And it's such an important place. And it's such a stronghold of deception. He is committed to planting a very solid church in Ephesus. Which will radiate out to all the other cities and communities in Roman Asia. So it's, it's a, a long time. Verse 10. This took place for two years. It already had three months, right? In the, in the synagogue. And then after that, after he moved to the school of Tyrannus, there was two more years. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Both Jews and Greeks. That's incredible. 
And then Luke gives us some details from this period, especially amazing miracles that Paul did and then some uh, encounters with other things. So now remember, Paul's an apostle. Jesus endowed the apostles, not everyone, but the apostles with amazing powers over disease and evil spirits. So um, that was the sign of their authority. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul actually says the signs of an apostle and he talks about wonders and miracles and, and those kind of things. So he had those kinds of powers. So here in verse 11, you can see how amazing it was. I mean, it's just at a level which we haven't seen uh, 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 before Peter in Jerusalem when it says that if a shadow fell on someone, they got well, you know, that kind of a thing. So nothing like that we've seen in the book of Acts until here. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them or the evil spirits went out. That, that's just incredible. Now I know TV evangelists do that too and if you send them so much money they'll send you their handkerchief. That's, that's not good. Don't count on that. That might not work. But this worked because Paul was an apostle. He actually had authority over those things and, and this is just a super level of being able, not even having to be present, just saying here, um, I'll touch this and you take it to so and so and they'll get well and they did. Now, you know, when that actually happens, word gets out, right? I mean, people start talking. So God is doing the miracles, it says, but through Paul's hands and even by extension through uh, cloth and things like that. So the result is way more attention to Paul than he would normally receive. He could do miracles in other places and he did, but not at this level. So God is interested in breaking the stronghold of Ephesus and he's doing it through great power through through Paul here. This is a population with many visitors coming and going looking to Artemis for blessings and they're in bondage. The whole region is in bondage, spiritual bondage. And so here's this one man Paul in the midst of all of that, people looking for blessings from that ugly, icky, creepy thing <laughs> and actually getting blessings from this man preaching Jesus and actually healings going on in incredible ways. So wonderful things are taking place. It's no wonder that it says in verse 10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Word about that would go out, it just would have to. It's so exciting, amazing things. Now, now Luke tells another story. There were Jewish and pagan exorcists that lived in Paul's day that did that kind of work. How successful were they? It's open to question. But Luke's next story strongly indicates that they didn't have much real power against spiritual forces. But I think Luke is telling this story for another reason. So, um, and that's because it became a well-known story. So here's the story. It's self-explanatory. I'm just going to read it. Verse 13. Also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I order you in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Now there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, doing this. But the evil spirit responded and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know of Paul, but who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit pounced on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And then the key here, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. So that last line is the main reason for Luke telling the story. The name of the Lord Jesus 
was being magnified. So Jesus is the name everybody's hearing about and there aren't many corners of Ephesus or the surrounding region where there isn't talk about Jesus. Now we learn other things about this situation from this situation with the seven sons of Sceva. Did you know that the name of Jesus is not a magic word? (laughs) That's what they were treating it like. It's a magic word. We'll use that magic word too. That's what they thought. Unbelievers wield Jesus' name without power because they don't have him. They don't even know him. They don't have any authority from him either to use his name. So, you know, you can, you can take your car and paint it black and white and put a, a light bar on top and put a siren on it and go pull somebody over and write them a ticket. But the police will arrest you <laughs> for doing that, right? You don't have authority to do that. And these guys didn't have authority from Jesus in any way to act on his behalf. They didn't belong to him. They rejected him, but they wanted to use his name because they thought it had power. Oh, it's just that name. No, it's that person. It's that person. So you cannot operate in the name of the Lord without authority. I should mention as well that the New Testament does not use the word exorcism with regard to the apostles or Jesus when they cast out demons. It doesn't use that word. Because exorcism is a ritual and um, we're talking about the exercise of divine authority here that's actually given. So it's, it's, it's not a ritual. So, so Joe coming along and finding somebody foaming at the mouth and saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, that doesn't mean anything. Because Jesus is not a magic word. The second thing to point out from this story is m- very relevant for today because we live in a, a day when People stop believing in Christianity, but they believe in anything else, right? So the world tells us to believe that um, the material world is all there is. Biology is all that human beings are. But most people know, instinctively know, that that's not true, that we're more than that. So they start groping for other answers. And they they latch themselves onto other kinds of religions and cults and all kinds of uh, new age things and stuff like that. I know people into that stuff. New agers, white witches... Modern pagans, they all use Jesus' name, all of them. Because Jesus is associated with God and love and good things because he was kind, right? So they use his name all the time. They're trying to latch on to a name that most people do associate with good things. They don't know or any care. They don't care anything about the real Jesus. They don't know him. They don't care anything about him. They don't study his teaching to understand who God is. They reject 90% of what he says, but they latch onto his name as a kind of a magical formula, plus something that people will respond kindly to. Oh, Jesus, they talk about Jesus in the temple of Astarte or whatever people are into these days. And in the seven sons of Sceva story, we see that even the devils have contempt for people like that. Who are you? Are you somebody? Uh, they, They don't respect that. But at the same time, Satan has found that using Jesus' name can be another very useful tool in deceiving people by just throwing his name into some mix of weird human invented ideas or some kind of pagan stuff. People are lied to in Jesus' name all the time. So you have to be really careful. So don't equate the name of Jesus with any idea or teaching that is contrary to the real Jesus. Because we have his words. The only thing we know about Jesus in terms of anything he ever said or taught or did is in the Bible. So 
anything that doesn't match up with that is not the Jesus that existed in real life, the real world. Don't let people manipulate you by using his name improperly. And churches that go off the rails do that too. And there's plenty of those around too. So let's keep going here. Verse 18 shows the incredible success of the gospel during Paul's time. We often talk about revival in church history. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit now. Um, Some revivals are are little more than worked up emotions and manipulation. People do that. There's people that are professionals at that. They set up a straw dust, sawdust tent thing, you know, and work people into a frenzy and take a lot of money and move on to the next town. That kind of stuff is really popular. They're they're using Jesus' name in a more orthodox way, but um, for the same malicious purposes. Other revivals are great works of the Spirit of God that cannot be explained by human manipulation or human reasoning based on Scripture and the proclamation of the Gospel where large numbers of people come to Christ, forsake their sinful lifestyles, are transformed on an ongoing basis and actually change the culture that they live in. Those are great revivals. And that does happen sometimes in history. And it happens here in Ephesus. I guess you can't call it a revival because they weren't alive ever. So um, this isn't a revive, it's just a vive. This is a, a big vive right here. So, um, but their hearts change. Very dramatic things happen. Look at verse 18. Many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the pieces of the the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. It's really hard to take ancient money and translate it exactly into our money, but we're talking about five or six million dollars worth of stuff easily. That was massive amounts of uh, value to these things. And they're just giving them up. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing rapidly, was growing and prevailing mightily. So follow the progression that Luke gives here. In verse 10, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Verse 17, the name of the Lord was being magnified. Verse 20, the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. So you put all that together and that's what we call a true revival. That's, that, that's a true work of God at a great level. So Ephesus was just awash in magic and um, many ancient cities were, but Ephesus was known for it. There's even a special thing called the Ephesian letters. You can look it up online, the Ephesian letters. There's just some nonsensical words and if you could pronounce them properly, you got some kind of benefits or blessing or controls. They sold charms and amulets and some of the amulets might have those words on them and they all supposedly had powers against evil spirits. People were totally wrapped up in that stuff, trying to control their life, trying to get blessings for their life. So when the gospel came, that changed dramatically. When that many people were bringing six million dollars worth of magic books to burn, to give up, that's changing the economy of Ephesus. That's changing the dynamic. That's changing everything that's going on there. With the gospel comes vast change. So many people were letting go of all that stuff, their whole past, and coming to Christ and living for him. Paul uses three, this won't mean anything to you, but the verbs are imperfect tense, which means this was an ongoing sort of a, a thing. It was a continuing thing. They were coming, they were confessing, they were disclosing. So if that happened today, what's happening here 
with large numbers of people with that level of commitment, we would call it a great revival. We would. And it's exciting. They were starting from scratch and this great thing happened. So this is like the great revivals in history because it's so impactful. So many people were coming to Christ from these pagan background, magical background, witch background. And it's changing the town. So we're going to look more at that next week, the, the change that happened. But I just want to talk about um, what a true work of God looks like just to kind of close this out here. A true work of God is not just having a really big church. Sometimes it's that, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. A true work of God, a fruit of the work of God, doesn't mean a lot of people necessarily. It often does, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. You can have a very well, there are very well known ministries that don't result in people living for Jesus. I won't mention any names today. But you can have a very large movement even um, carefully packaged to entertain people and feed their flesh and get them coming on a regular basis to church and doing all kinds of things and giving them a real high and uh, they just walk out of there. Talk. I, I remember I was in a gym one time years ago when I went to the gym and there was a lady in there talking about her church and and just how great the music was and how high she was and how just totally zapped she was from the whole experience. And then she was swearing up and down everything. I mean, just, she was totally a worldly woman, but she, she just happened to mention that, you know, that that's what I'm talking about. You can feed the flesh of people to get them to come and donate their money and stuff, but that's not a true work of God. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. You know, the Hillsong movement, Right now they're dealing with tons of scandals. I mean horrible scandals. Gross, twisted things that went on by their pastors in this huge movement, this global movement, you know, where entertainment is everything. They even have the naked pet cowboy on stage in their uh, New York one because they, they, they do Broadway type stuff on, in church and all that kind of, The whole thing's collapsing because there's, it's a disaster. They're, they're feeding flesh. You can't do that. A true work of God is marked by holiness of life, personal humility, repentance, and following Jesus. That doesn't mean we're perfect, but a true work of God touches us in some meaningful way that we want to live for him. Now, there have been a lot of times in history when churches were asleep and needed a revival, right? Just kind of everybody was asleep. There just wasn't a lot going on. But seldom, I think, and ever in history do you see the noise and the bombast and the worldliness that you see today in some of these movements. It's just incredible. We should seek and pray for revival, but you have to pray for it because you know what? You can't make it happen. I can't make it happen. It's a work of God in his timing. And he does do it. You know, when I think of what happened at Ephesus, I think of the Great Awakening. You know, I was a church history major in college and I've just always been fascinated by that period and the people that lived at that particular time. Mid-18th century, the outpouring of grace on America and England and Germany in that particular moment in time, early middle 18th century, is just like what's happening here at Ephesus. It's unlike anything that happened in the book of Acts outside of the Holy Land. I mean, when Peter preached on Pentecost in those days, that was like that. But pretty soon, you know, as the gospel spread, we haven't seen that kind of thing. But now we're seeing it in Ephesus. It's huge. God moving on the hearts of people. 
That's a true revival. That is an awakening. I like the word awakening better than revival because that actually describes what's happening in the heart of people. The great, great Awakening started in 1734 and there was a pastor named Jonathan Edwards and he preached three sermons, typical sermons, doctrinal sermons on justification by faith. And all of a sudden everything changed. Just one guy in one place, Northampton, Massachusetts, kind of an important inner city away from the coast in Massachusetts. Great things happened. He was just teaching on a central doctrine of the faith and he was not a fiery preacher at all from what we know. But something happened. A woman that was attending those sermons said it was as quote as though Edwards were walking up and down the streets of Northampton pointing his accusing finger at one house after another unearthing secret sins and holding them up for all of us to see. You want me to preach like that? But you know what? He didn't mention anybody since. He wasn't pointing out anybody individually. The Holy Spirit was doing that. He's talking about justification by faith and the Holy Spirit is convicting everybody. She says it was like he did that because he was giving God's truth and the Holy Spirit was just suddenly applying it to all these people in their church. And the town was completely changed. Let me read you what Jonathan Edwards said about this a little bit later. He said, presently upon this, this is that kind of language from then, so kind of listen. A great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world, eternal world, became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and all ages. All other talk but about spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All the conversations in all companies and upon all occasions was only upon these things unless so much as was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary secular business. But this work of God as it was carried on and the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in the town so that in the spring and summer following the year of 1735 the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There was scarcely a single person in the town either young or old that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Can you imagine that actually happening in Acton, California? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Sometimes it happens. And then, totally separate from that, in New Jersey, an, another thing like that happened. The pastor there, his name was Gilbert Tennant. He went on to found uh, what's called the Log Cabin College for Pastors, but um, it happened there. And Edwards wrote a book about the experiences they had in Northampton um, and in 1737 and that book became very popular throughout America and it made it to England and was very popular in England. And soon in England two guys rose up, very unusual, a little bit different from one another. One was named John Wesley and one was named George Whitfield, and they were doing things that were absolutely shocking. They preached outside of church. <laughs> they would go where the sinners were, preach sermons in open fields to miners to workers to anybody that would listen and they started gathering these gigantic crowds and George Whitfield was like the most amazing preacher of almost any time. He had this incredible voice that in fact he preached in Philadelphia and Benjamin Franklin walked through a crowd of tens of thousands of people to see if he could still hear him from the back. He was just curious scientifically about him. They became really good friends even though Franklin never came to Christ and, they, and he became uh, George Whitfield's publisher in America. Really interesting stories about some of these guys. But Whitfield came to America in 1740 and in 73 days he traveled 800 miles and preached 130 sermons. 
Four of those sermons were preached at Jonathan Edwards Church in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. And Whitfield not only won thousands of people to Christ, he, he personally helped connect all of the different preachers were, that were seeing this happen. So it became a real movement. Now by the American Revolution, a generation later, church attendance was way down. So revivals happen at certain times to a whole lot of people making lasting changes in their lives, but it doesn't always carry on to the next generation. We see that a lot today. The next generation is sort of faltering, groping. They don't know where to look. Got to pray for God to have a move of the Spirit on our land. I think it's actually going to happen at some point because things are so bad. He's going he's to want to bring people in so it's going to happen again. And it'll fade again. But it will happen again, I think. I hope so. I pray for that. What was the effect in, of the Great Awakening? Well, out of the population in New England of about 300,000 people, that was the total population, 40 to 50,000 more people joined churches and became active members of churches. That's a large percentage. That's a great work of God. That just doesn't happen very often. Communities were transformed. The morals of those communities changed dramatically. Who did that? Well, Jonathan Edwards must have some secret. He had the gospel. And the Holy Spirit did it. It's only the Holy Spirit that can make something like that happen. So the Holy Spirit did for many people what he did for Lydia in Acts chapter 16. He opened her heart to believe and he just did it. Edwards had been preaching great doctrines for years in his sleepy church. And then the Spirit comes and this awakening happens. Now anytime there's a great move of God there's going to be silly things that accompany it and people trying to imitate it. And so there were a lot of excesses and kind of odd things. So Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Religious Affections. It's sort of a primer on true and false converts. And it's very valuable. It's still valuable. A lot of people read that today. Whenever God does something, human beings try to imitate it or make it happen. We're always trying to do what only God can do. So they turn to emotional manipulation or psychological techniques to get people to respond and do things like that where they claim to have powers that they don't have to stir people up and get them to follow them. You can whip up a revival or what looks like a revival but it's not a true revival if people aren't truly changed and it impacts the world. You can, you can manipulate people into making a decision for Jesus. You can do that. But only God can change a heart and open the heart. Only God can do that. So real revival is a work of God on the hearts of many people at the same time. And he does do that. And he can do it whenever he wants to. So it's not artificial. It's not created by recreating the world's entertainment or creating a mood, you know. How would it be if every time I was speaking there was this kind of subtle music playing behind me, you know, like, a, like a movie score? I, I, you don't need that. I don't need a musician to tell you how to feel while I'm talking. True revival is not artificial. It comes from a genuine conviction of sin and a love for Christ. That's, what, that's how you know something has happened. And only God can do that to a person. But I want it to happen. What can we do? Okay, I'm going to tell you what to do. Pray. <laughs> that's what you can do. 
Be faithfully committed to the gospel. Be holy in your life. Live a life that serves as a model of God's grace to other people. Do that. Whatever a Christian should be, be that. (laughs) Be humble. Forsake sin. Those people were coming and confessing and getting rid of their sin. Love God. Love people as much as Jesus did in the way that he did. Be Bible-centric in your thinking. That's really important. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 mentions a simple and pure devotion to Christ. That's always been sort of my theme for our church, to have a simple and pure devotion to Christ. That's all you need. Be discerning and wise. In theology, be a Berean. Always check your things out with the Bible. In life, be really careful, not impulsive. Don't be superstitious. You know, your life does not depend on a certain formula for doing things. It depends on your relationship with a person. God is a person. He's not a machine. He's not a law. He's a person that you relate to. Trust him. Do all of those things and God will bring a revival in his time. In his time. And I can't wait to see it happen in America. I hope it does. Well, after Paul is in Ephesus for three years, the church is about to get in trouble again. The gospel is too successful. Artemis is big business and business is down. And they're pretty upset about it. So we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your grace that does open the heart and transforms us, makes us live differently. And Lord, when you're so gracious that you do it for many people, the world changes. People don't visit idols anymore. They take the idols out of their minds and turn to you and live for you. They submit their morals to you to determine what is right and wrong. They humble themselves before you. So we pray that you would make that work real in us every day. And we pray that you would grant our people that same blessing. We know you have purposes for all that you do. Sometimes it's in judgment to show your holiness. At other times it's in great revival to show your compassion on wicked men. We pray for that. And we long to see it in Jesus' name. Amen.